Welcome to the Mass Startup Podcast. Hey guys, um, so before we start today's episode, just want to say welcome to 2021, um, I guess. I mean, we're already about seven days in and so much is already happening. Um, I'm a bit worried about what that means, but also super still you know, hopeful, excited, grateful, and hoping for a really incredible year. Um, most of all, I'm just praying for a really much easier ride for entrepreneurs, for startups, for small businesses, um, whatever that may look like. I really hope that this year is much more kind, um, much more considerate. And, you know, as much as that might be utopian or whatever, I really hope it happens. Um, I think entrepreneurs are doing really incredible work under the conditions of, uh, you know, unprecedented reality. And I really hope that this year, um, really captures your spirit, man, and like you, you, you really lean into the things that you really want to build, um, and you want to build the things that you actually believe in. And um, this episode is really just about highlighting some of the really amazing guests that we had over 2020. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, I think uh, the podcast growth has been really incredible, and I'm really, really grateful for every listen, every share. Um, each time someone says, hey, um, you should listen to a podcast, and um, you have, you know, even the slightest thought, hey, maybe I should recommend my startup. I, I really appreciate that. So I want to say thank you um, for listening, for sharing, for caring at all. Um, I think this is one of those things um, that you really, really pour everything into. Um, I love this podcast with everything that I have. And I'm super, super excited to see what we evolve and change and grow into this year. And um, I'd really like to get a lot more participation from everyone as well. Um, so I really want to see a lot more suggestions on guests you might like to see um, on the show, um, possibly topics that you think we should cover, and things you might be really, really focused on that you wish that we should you know, shine a light on and try and like focus on for a bit. So please enjoy this really, really um, interesting episode, which is a mesh of a bunch of different entrepreneurs that we had on the podcast in 2020, and the incredible lessons that they had and also shared on this podcast, but also on other platforms to try and help entrepreneurs really navigate the times that we really went through. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice summary of the realities that a lot of entrepreneurs faced and the different things that a lot of people are trying to do to change their situations and find ways to really win um, with everything that's going on. So please enjoy. And if you, if you feel so inclined, please do subscribe and share. Um, I think the more people listen to this, the more impact that we can have and possibly the more growth that we can have to try and impact even more people. Um, please listen and enjoy. When you look at the, the campaigns, or when I look at them, it's just it's always about the small businesses. It's always about the entrepreneurs. It's all about the focus is on them yeah. way more than it is on... Um, the business or the technology or yeah. any of that. Um, what, have you, what have you seen as being the impact of having that focus on the actual entrepreneurs and small businesses and the creators and the people that are actually uh, making the economy grow and build and stuff like that? Well, people connect with other people. And in the end, the best storytelling is emotional storytelling. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, an amazing, there's an amazing saying which is like, data goes in through the heart, you know, and that's true. It's like, um, you know, it's people remember things if it hits them in the heart. 
And in the end, I am a firm believer that the storytelling is at least at the heart of every piece of marketing out there. Um, and therefore, it's people. People is what matters. Yeah. How, how, how can other startups and entrepreneurs really start to apply something like that to their own businesses, especially with the limited resources they have to market Yeah, so it's interesting. Like I was even speaking to some, a very small startup uh, last week who asked me a very similar question. And I think that you know, the impact of your product or service on the people that you are selling it to is a story that almost any small business can tell and that they probably aren't telling. So like, if you see your product as just like a functional thing, that's one thing, but like the impact that that can have on the lives of your customers, you know, no matter what your product or service is, is probably a worthy story to tell. And then it's about how do you, how do you capture that? And people, people respond to visuals. And people, people respond nowadays to video in particular, but even just beautiful visuals. And sometimes it is as easy as getting a good photographer to capture a moment of interaction between your product and your customers or telling your customer's story, going a little bit deeper about how you're influencing their lives. There's a lot of gold there, which I think is missed often. And people think very one-dimensionally about like, oh, well, this is a product that doesn't have, it doesn't really like doesn't have an emotional angle to it. No, like almost every product has some emotional angle. Like you can take like what it stands for and what it does and like take it up a level to like what it's making people feel or do. So that's the link that people need to make. And I think, you know, unless you're a brand marketer at heart, some people like don't see those links. They just see the functional stuff. But yeah, ultimately it's about people. That having the right to argue that. I know it's the crap out of this. Like, can we have a focused objective? Because in an organization, you've worked in a startup that grew, grew quite quickly. The number one thing was that everyone needed to be focused in one direction, right? Yeah, one you need direction. one vision. You need a vision that goes above um, all things and, 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 and it needs to... So with every decision you make, there has to be a link that says, okay, how does this add back to the vision that we have, right? So... Any decision, any partnership, any move you make, any anything you say, do, or you know, think of needs to be focused on how does this add back to the vision. And I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs and creators struggle with is understanding what that vision might be, but also shaping their actions or matching their actions to that vision in a real way. So even in a country context, so we can take it from a country context to right down to just you know an individual. If you don't understand why you're doing something and what's the overarching goal above everything, it's really, really difficult to see how you'll do it um, or what it's going to take to do it. And like, mm. I think that's a perfect, you know, intro to this last question, which is like, what is the ultimate vision of the People's Fund, but also your ultimate vision in life? So, hmm. <laughs> so I was actually answering this question this week. So my ultimate vision in life is. I'd like human beings to be dealing with the existential question of why do we exist? And above that, um, how do we how do we continue our existence if it matters? So if we answer that first question in the affirmative that our existence matters, which is open for debate, how do we continue our existence in a way or sustain it in a way that is symbiotic with the environment we, we live in? And one of the existential crisis we have around that is global warming. But nobody's focused on that because why? We're stuck in identity politics, right? And what the vision of the People's Fund is, is 
Um, you remember I used to have a company called Paybook, and that was like arguably my first company that I grew to something where I got a little bit comfortable. And I realized when I got to that comfort that I was hit by my worst depression. Why? Because my why of Paybook was to prove a point and figure out what it feels like to arrive. And immediately when I arrived, I realized all of this shit doesn't matter, right? So, mm. but I would have never understood that on an empty stomach, right? So one of the things is nobody's going to listen to the global warming argument when blackness is still suffering adverse inequality and, and, and not just blackness, like all of the elements of intersectional feminism, right? Like blackness, gender, um, sexual predilection and all of those things. So if you can solve the number one impediment to those power dynamics, right, which is the economics of it, we can start having conversations because I can't, I can't talk on an empty stomach, right? Um, so that's, that's the ultimate vision of, of the People's Fund is equal access to opportunity for those who strive to seek it. Actually, Tulu said that, you know, within the company, he framed that, right, like quite nicely. Like, we believe in access to opportunity for those who strive to, 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 who strive to seek them, right? Seek out those opportunities and execute on them. So the ultimate vision of the People's Fund, 2030, we must be the preferred purchase order funding company on the continent, right? Doing 10 billion in financing US dollars um, per year, right? That's the ultimate vision. Then I can exit the company. I'm happy there. I'm done. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, mo moving to like um, your your business growth. How do you say you you measure that? Like, what do you guys focus on when you measure whether or not you're growing as yeah. a business? I think for startups it's different. Yeah, I think startups are in phases. So you, one, you have a phase where you're ideating mm. and you're, you you first put the idea together. And then where you're testing, you know, and then from testing, then you start rolling out. And I think for each cycle, like right now, the monetary element of it has not been a big me measurement of whether we're successful or not. So we haven't been looking at too much at how much revenue we're making. We've been looking at usage. We've mm -hmm. been looking at feedback. So we've been modifying the platform by, uh, by getting feedback from our users and basically seeing that after making those changes, are they still using it? And that's been a big sort of key metrics for measurement uh, up to our seed round. And now between our seed and our series A, now we're pushing for revenue now. Because now we've spent a lot of time with this pilot of users who told us, we don't like this, we like that, add this feature, add that feature, add that feature. Now that we've sort of getting over that line, now we're pushing to say, okay, how much are we moving on the platform? How much is it moving for? And with each cycle, that sort of changes. Like right now, culture is a big measurement for us because we're feeling that with the growth we're having on the team, people coming on board, the foundation we lay becomes very important. But at this stage, usage was a big thing. And it's tough. I know I'm sounding maybe abstract to a lot of people because you still need to make money for your business to thrive. Um, and we had the benefit that we had a previous business and we first used money from that business to fund, um, to fund Kula. But yeah, I think that was largely the measurement. And then now... It's only now that we're really looking at numbers where we need to start reporting to the public that we've traded this much, we have this many users, we've done this, we've done that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you guys raised a, a seed round. Um, seed A, yeah. Seed a. <laughs> um, just to, you know, I like to be as inclusive as possible. Yeah. <laughs> what is a seed round? So, I think in, in by definition, a seed round is where you sort of, you have an idea of what's wrong and you have an idea of how to solve it. 
and you raise funding to test that, mm. right? Um, and so you say maybe you have an MVP type of situation and you're raising funding to test because one of the big things about tech startups is that if you don't have money in the bank, right, and you're making decisions so that you can pay salaries, or you're making decisions so that you can pay rent, you can actually distort your broader business model. So seed round is to cover your bases so that you know that the rent will be paid, people's salaries will be paid for the next two years, for the next three years. Then you can really innovate truly for the users and not just thinking about putting bread on the table or paying people's salaries. Because mm. as soon as you're thinking towards that, it really changes and you can end up not building the right business model because you just went for the thing that will make a quick buck. So the seed round is sort of us raising a runway that's going to allow us to really, really, really think and really, really test and move very quickly without just thinking about um, bread or rent and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then that's going to allow us to get to Series A. And Series A would be where we have now sort of, um, I guess, have done well within certain limitations of the market in SA. And then maybe between A to B, we'd be conquering the SA market or the Southern Africa market. So it's basically different phases of expansion in the business. But the seed is exactly that. You're planting that seed and you want to make sure that you have enough runway to allow yourself to really think about the idea without the constraint of worrying about where your next bread going to come from or how you're going to pay rent. Yeah. yeah. And what sort of advice um, would you have for someone that's trying to raise money, especially in South Africa's environment? Yeah. Which is, you know, I think it's a, it's a very complex environment, very yeah. siloed, very fragmented. Um, your experience of raising a seed round, um, what did it teach you and what advice would you have for another entrepreneur that's trying to do the same? It was horrible. I think it was horrible. Mm. I think one of the reasons why our startup ecosystem is not thriving is because it's so very, very difficult to raise money in South Africa. Um, I can't tell you the number of meetings I've sat in trying to raise money. Um, and corporate essay is quite notorious where you sit in lots of meetings and you go and you pitch to them like, oh, we love this. We want to get involved. Let me call Sally from finance. And you go back and you pitch again. Let's call Johnny from what <laughs> And you're just, just like dancing around for these guys for like eight months. And at the end, they're like, oh, it's not aligned with our strategy, but we wish you the mm. best. But now you've lost an entire eight months busy pouncing around with these different guys. Then the guys that do want to invest don't understand startups. So they say to you, no, you want a 51% stake. Like as soon as you take 51%, you've killed my energy. Like how am I going to really, you've literally taken my business, you know? Mm. And you hear stuff like that. They want you to take a 51% stake. Um, so I think when it comes to fundraising, I think before we get to fundraising, we have to go back. Make sure you're solving a pain point. If you're not solving mm. a pain point, the fundraising journey is going to be a nightmare. Like you need to be solving a big pain for someone. And that sort of eases the fundraising round. And when going into funding, I know there's a lot of VCs out there, but I wouldn't advise entrepreneurs to go to VCs. I know this is a bit weird, but not in well, SA. Why would you say that? I'd say that because I think VCs, especially in South Africa, play like referees. Um, you know, they want to referee you where it's like, oh, it's the end of the year. How much have you made? Have you done this? Have you done that? Submit this to me every month. Complete the survey. You know what I mean? Mm. Whereas I think your best investor is probably your client or mm. your user, someone who you joined at the hip with. And I think the likes of Slack are a good example where I think in IBM, I could be wrong, invested in them. Um, and by IBM investing, they also get all of the employees to use Slack as a platform. Mm. So the, your investor is also your client and they can also open other doors for you. So you want 
an, an investor that has the same, where well, your success is their success, mm. you know, not where they are referee to see, have you made profit? Have you increased users? Have you, but they're saying, how do we increase users? Mm. How do we gain market share? How do we do this and sustainably? It, and it becomes more of a partnership. It's thing. more of a partnership. And that's the angle that we've gone with, you know, where we're saying, okay, um, we'll be announcing a, 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 our latest round, just closing off our seed round. We've got a KSE listed company that's invested in us. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, yeah, so we'll be announcing that. But even with this particular investor, we are joined at the hip. Our success is their success. They're throwing their major resources or their JSE uh, multi-billion resources towards our success because we're both, us and the investor, asking ourselves, how do we make this work? Because if Kula works, it works for them as well. And I think mm. for me, for any startup founder, I'd say instead of going for a traditional VC or financier, yeah, if, you, if, you, if your customer can be your investor, if your client or your user can be your investor, rather go that, that route. And with VCs, I guess, manage expectation um, mm. in terms of where you're trying to go. And even with a VC at the table, you still need a customer or someone who you join at the hip with um, in terms of going forward. So one of the things I've seen or a quote I always love using when I do presentations is start a side hustle before you get disrupted. So self-disrupt before you are disrupted by retrenchments, restructures and COVID. <laughs> so you need to have a backup plan. And I think a side hustle is a nice backup plan because it gives you an opportunity to dipstick. So I was able to test out does this tea thing work? How do I see it work? And then if it didn't work, I was going to scrap it and try something else. But at least it gives you an opportunity to dipstick. I've always wanted to work in the uh, fast-moving consumer goods space, like when I started off in my 20s. So that was like 12 years ago for those that want to count. Um, <laughs> and I, I always wanted to be in FMCG, like I'm saying. And it was a struggle getting in. So then I ended up in banking and financial services. Hey, it's worked the best for me. I've loved it. But starting the tea business allowed me that in into an industry that I couldn't um, initially get into. So it also opens your mind on opportunity to a different industry. So if you are a banker who likes getting into fashion, start now. Do you know what I mean? Because if you don't start now, you'll never know. So... It's very important, like e-commerce, you were supposed to start it yesterday so that at least you have some sort of a backup plan and also not only a backup plan, but I want to call it a distraction, but a good distraction so that um, you can go out there and discover something that you didn't even discover about yourself. So side hustles are really eye-opening opportunities upskilling opportunities but also reskilling opportunities so yeah i really want to focus on this like self-disruption like how do you even begin to you know explore what you should be doing outside of um what your core is right so with you how did you even find the team like what's the origin story of that side hustle it's a love story, hence love tea time. <laughs> <laughs> please, please tell yeah, the story. So obviously I traveled um, out to Kenya around 2017. That's when the business started. And my husband, is a he's a tea lover of note. 
So the gift box I bought him, I'm the one who actually originally um, consumed the apple and cinnamon. So I always use it as my signature flavor because that's the that's the flavor that started this 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 tea business. And um, so I called. There was already a distributor here in SA, so um, I used to order stock from him. And obviously, he wanted to now leave the business. And I was like, well, I've already started. I think it's time to continue. So I called up the the suppliers out there in Kenya. And I was like, I want to now take over and also start growing this business. And that's how the business um, started. So trading at pop-up markets, like I alluded to earlier, is was when I wanted that access to markets because getting into retail was very difficult. They wanted financials. They wanted proof points and performance on, okay, so you bought this product. Does it even sell? And how are you going to get that if you've just started your business too? So pop-up markets were a very good opportunity to get out there um, get in contact, get in that customer's face. So it's obviously different. It's one of your first self-disruption steps because you used to an office job. Now I had to be carrying tables and tents and gazebos and uh, camp masters and 250 liter clear tubs of tea and go out there and sell that. So it's also stepping out of your comfort zone and trying something different, setting up shop at these pop-up markets and then when the customers would ask, so where do I get the tea if you're not at the market? I was like, um, you can phone me. So that's not a good answer. <laughs> so now I'm confident to be like, you can get it on take a lot, you know? And mm. so it's those kind of things of self-disrupting yourself, self-disrupting your business and always improving. You don't have to make those grand changes. It's just about iterations, so iterations, small steps, um, and just try. If you don't try it, you won't know if it's going to work or not work. So little disruptions, little iterations, little changes will really get you to that next step. So say it, it's too late for me, right? And unfortunately, it's I It's not too it. late, but okay. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say it's too late for me. And I've just now been retrenched and I didn't self-disrupt early enough. And now... COVID has disrupted me and I've lost my income and say I possibly have a, 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 a severance or anything like that and now I need to make the next move. You know, what are people who now need to live in this new world? What do you think they should be doing first? Like, what's the opportunity right now? So first is to stop and breathe. I think just breathe because I think there's a lot of anxieties that are out there. So that's the first one. Secondly is I had a call with a friend of mine and I said to her, I think I'm a bit calmer than everybody else during this situation because I've already experienced my own lockdown or my own COVID that I happen to have chosen the path and it kind of happened to me. So I'll take a step back of when I decided to leave corporate and I woke up one morning and I was like, I'm done. I'm leaving. And I left. And the first month was so exciting. I was like, yay, I'm fun employed. Let's do this. This is the life I wanted. I attended all these entrepreneurship workshops and webinars and et cetera, et cetera. So that's tip number one is attend all these free things that are happening right now. Webinars, it doesn't matter which country, get on there, log on, listen and network. That's tip one. So I attended all these um, conferences, etc. Month two, I was like, okay, it's getting real. 
sales are low, retailers aren't paying me their invoices, so cash flow is a huge problem because I'm just now waiting to be paid and now T is what I'm going to be dependent on. And um, I was also waiting for my pension to be paid out. So again, it's a large sum of money and I get it either, it either stays in a provident fund and or I use it, which is not the best advisable thing. So which is what financial advisors say. So I'm not a financial advisor. Let's get that straight. I'm just sharing my experience. And so all that stuff now gets paid out. And um, the sales are very slow. Even on e-commerce platforms, they're slow. Pop-up markets, yeah, they're gradually happening because now I've got more time. So I'm really out there and I'm selling and I'm selling and I'm selling. And then comes the third month, third, fourth month, and I'm like, oh shit, what did I just do to my life? I had a good paying job. There's no more tweet tweet on the 20th of month of month. Sales are slow. What am I going to do? And I was depressed. I was depressed. I had lost my confidence. I Well, I had already lost it when I decided to leave corporate, but I had to rebuild. And luckily, I got a mentor, an amazing guy who was um, referred to me by a friend. And um, Namdi is also an author of a book called Disrupting Africa. So I started reading also his content. We went through a very nice um, exercise of things like doing things like the Wheel of Life and mapping out where am I from 1 to 10 um, in terms of from a spiritual perspective, from an emotional perspective, from a financial perspective, from a family life perspective, from a relationship perspective, and really analyzing all these different things and rating them. And then also doing a nice analysis of the last five to 10 years of my life and how did all these categories also look like. And then I saw little peaks and I went back to what did I do well at that peak? And what are the cherries or the lessons or the nuggets that I can use now in this time? And then I was thinking, okay, maybe it's time to go back to corporate. But I was like, but I haven't given this break a chance. Um, let me start applying. So there I went and I applied for jobs and I applied for jobs. And I'm like, let me go back. Hundreds of job applications and three responses, three interviews, no offers. And I was like, yo, must now I'm unemployed or unemployable. <laughs> So I'm like, so I don't have a job. I'm not getting an income. This is crazy. What have I just done? And it's going to happen to you. So you now have to take that step back and you say, okay, let me reskill. What has changed that's making me unemployable? So I was in the product management space and um, I saw that most of the, the roles have now become more technical. So I have to now learn about this new agile thing that had now come about and scrums and user stories. There I went into YouTube and I was learning how to do this new thing in the product development space. So again, tip two is upskill, reskill. The content is out there. It's freely available. Get yourself into it. What are these new roles looking for and looking like? Because now with this working from home and borderless way of interacting jobs, you can now apply for anything everywhere. And now you're also competing with everyone from everywhere. So you have to be able to now stand out from everybody else. So upskill, get into YouTube, learn about the new catchphrases and new things that are happening in your industry. 
So I did some of that so that I can now try and reapply and stuff. And then I went back to LinkedIn and I revamped my LinkedIn page. So I just had where I was working. And I was like, I need to tell more. The projects I've worked on, your e-wallets, um, you know, what have I done? Tell those stories Tell and bring in a personal element to it as well. So upgrade your LinkedIn profile, get out there, even comment on people's posts because it's all about engagement. So don't just, it mustn't just sit there and gather dust. It's about engaging. And um, also slide into the DMs. So I know it sounds weird and not a lot of people have the confidence to do so, but do it. That's also the awesome thing about LinkedIn. If you see a role and you like it, find, do some third degree investigation, find out who the hiring manager is and slide into their DMs, send them an email. Hello, I'm Busi. I've worked at company A, B, and C at bank one, two, three. I've got experience in payments and product management. I also run a tea business and I would add value. It's all about value exchange. I would add value to your business in one, two, three, four, send. And the chances are they will come back to you. And if they don't come back to you, try again, try again and try again because there is a door that is willing to open. And eventually, with all these things that I'm saying, is how I was able to kind of take myself out of that deep black hole that I had once created and kind of feel like a phoenix and kind of rise and fly, is I put myself out there. I rebranded, I rechanged, and I told my story. So you must also do the same um, in in that situation. And then comes from the financial things is that I also learned how to be very, very prudent. Um, they used to call me a miser. They've called my parents and called What's me miser. miser. <laughs> and then my mom, my mom calls me Mabusana, and she'd be like, "Hey, Mara, Mabusana, Yangushana." So someone who just Yangushana, and you become very cost conscious. So I did things like cutting down my storage. I didn't need that big warehouse anymore. So I went and I got something smaller. Um, I also realized that, okay, I was spending too much money on other things that I didn't need. So how am I able to draw back on the lifestyle that you don't really need? So look at that budget and see where can you cut costs? So, I mean, I've been driving like the same car for a very long time. I mean, I had my Yari for like up to 350,000 Ks. You know, exactly. <laughs> I only changed my car like recently because I had to, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. <laughs> and so it's those kind of things is how do you cut down on those line items and budgets and become more prudent? And then the big one is paying off your debt and settling off your debt. I think if you have any, now is the time to burn that ish and close it off. I think that for me is also one of the first is pay off everything, pay off that house, you know. Just make sure that you secure and that if anything happens or the COVID extends further, that at least you still have a roof and you can still eat, Um And I think that's what COVID has allowed. It's for us to go back to the basics, to what is the true meaning of life um, rather than the materialism. Yeah. Again, long-winded, but I think after having (laughs) had gone through my own 
own COVID and lockdown and quarantine have kind of used all those tips and traits and, you know, bringing them back to the situation that we're in right now. And I think being positive, being in positive spaces with positive people um, and reaching out. And I think the last thing is talk. People don't talk enough. Like if you're struggling, talk, um, reach out and say to someone you need help. Um, that will make a world of a difference. It would be wonderful if these value systems can be um, ingrained in integrity. Uh, because like the challenges that we have are very different from the challenges. As, as, as young black Africans specifically, like my my mom's generation and her mom's generation, she could not be a fintech internet entrepreneur, even if she wanted, no matter how skilled she could be, mm. right? So the, the fundamental challenge is different because we're playing in a globalized economy where all of us are information workers and all of a sudden it doesn't really matter where you are born if you can do the work, right? So we're globally competing and you're not just competing with other South Africans. You and MASH are competing for attention um, from the world with kids from Singapore, <laughs> right? And um, having a value system that is uh, built on top of integrity as a premise, so, you, know, you need to mean what you say mm. and say what you mean. I think like, that's a very good start. And then there are also the values that we choose for ourselves um, can be whatever we really want them to be based on who you are as people. I'm not here to prescribe what people should value, but as long as we exhibit integrity in expressing those values, mm. then I think it makes life easier for everybody and makes it easier for us to integrate into the global um, economy and society as a whole. If we're able to do this well, then our leaders will command, leaders from our generation will command the same level of attention and respect as leaders from other parts of the world at global fora and summits. When you look at, like, you know, um, the World Economic Forum in Davos or uh, the G, G7 thing in New York, right? Um, when you look at how African leaders are looked at vis-a-vis -vis their European, Chinese, Asian, American um, counterparts, they're not treated with the same level of respect mm. and, and seriousness because it's just like, there's a reputation that we have attached to ourselves now as like the being one of the uh, poverty capitals of the world, being one of the corruption capitals of the world. Though statistically that might not be true because the same corruption exists in many other parts of the world, but it's colored mm -hmm. differently. We have that brand attached to us. Mm -hmm. And people look at our brand to make decisions, right? Um, I think a big part of the reason why the U.S. is one of the most globally relevant, if not the most globally relevant economy today, I mean, we base all of our thinking of value in dollars, is because of how it, America's brand works for it. For a very long time, I believe that America was the superhero and custodian of the world's well-being. Yeah. And that has come undone with COVID. Oh, yeah. I, I think I saw a meme <laughs> where someone was like, you know, the, it was like a, a sort of stick figure and they were like poking like a superhero and they were like, aren't you the one that's supposed to save us? Exactly. Like, and everyone America was like, is. America, Where's you the need to save us, right? <laughs> And it's, it's so scary to see that sort of brand and mythical superhero, we're going to save the world. Exceptionalism. American yes. exceptionalism. Just come and done in real time. That definitely is a failure of leadership because I know there are many very smart Americans who create a lot of value in the world today. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for America's existence. 
Um, however, it's quite clear that right now, uh, leadership in the U.S. is um, chaotic yeah. at best. Yeah. Um, and the world is uh, seeing that quite clearly. Um, yeah, you know, that is what it is. And I think it actually creates room for other like global actors to start to um, present their narrative more. Mm. I'm very optimistic. So a lot of people, this is, this is a terribly hot take, um, but I'm actually pretty optimistic about China's influence on Africa. Mm. Um, yeah, like that's my view. Like I'm actually pretty optimistic about some of the things that um, China is doing on the continent. There's been a lot of rhetoric being um, shared all over the world around like, okay, what is China trying to do? And I feel like in American and Western media specifically, China has been painted as the enemy for mm. some reason. But like when you look at it objectively, like what are Chinese people doing that's any worse than what anyone is from anywhere else in the world is doing particularly? Mm. Like, like what are the Chinese doing that's so bad specifically, mm. right? And I'm not able to identify anything. Uh, that is unique to them as a global actor. Um, if anything, some of the things that they're doing like are a net positive. They're constructing infrastructure. Yes, they're going to own that infrastructure and they're going to capitalize it and they're going to monetize it. But like, there wasn't a train where you were before. Mm. My government is not building me train tracks on a train. I need a train to get from A to B. Mm. And the Chinese are bringing me a train. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna get on the train, bro. <laughs> so, um, I think a thing that's really like, um, and again, I appreciate you for putting me on to Clubhouse and the sort of conversation you're talking about is something that I've seen a bunch of times in, in rooms that you have. So, Wiza runs one of the best communities on Clubhouse, which is Sankara <laughs> Lounge. And you know, the one thing that I've always said, and people don't like that I say this, but mm. South Africans, we have this, uh, we have blinders on. That's, <laughs> That's true. We have these blinders <laughs> where we think, you know, South Africa is the continent and the continent is great, but South Africa is greater, right? Yeah, and we have, this, we have this cocoon mindset where we are the best and everything that is us is great, right? And yeah. I think those sessions, whether it's Sankara Lounge or a few others in the trend, have really showed me just like how real things are beyond just the Limpopo border, which is sort of the northernmost part of South Africa. Mm. And I wanted to tweet this and I couldn't. I was like, <laughs> you know, if you humble yourself and you just keep quiet for a little bit and you go on the internet and mm. understand what's happening in Kenya, what's happening in Nigeria, what's happening in Ghana, what's happening in Egypt, but just like across the continent, if you went and looked at what entrepreneurs, small businesses and startups are doing, you will really be humble. Yeah. You might, you might, you might shut up a little bit as a South African because you'll start to actually realize, oh wait, we just have really good PR. Absolutely. I mean, um, I've I've lived in Malawi. I've lived in Kenya. I've spent a lot of time in many parts of the continent: West Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda. Uh, I, I think I speak quite authoritatively when I say. In general, uh, from most perspectives, life is easier in SA mm. than in many other parts of the country. It's not the best. It's not incredible. Yes, there are challenges. There are some very unique challenges. For example, the, the violence against women here is absurd. Yeah. That's the only word to describe it. It's a crisis. It. What's going on? Like, it's a crisis. Why do people hate women so much? 
It's a crisis. <laughs> it's not being treated as such, but it's a crisis. Yeah, some things are horrible, but like life in general is easier for many types of people in SA. And I feel that many South Africans uh, take this for granted, and it's not a thing that's unique to South Africans. Everyone from a certain land, when you become too familiar, you start to take for granted the things that you don't even know are good. Mm. But only when you're exposed to other societies, when you realize, like, oh, wow, this is actually a pretty good thing that we have going on here. There's so many things that I take for granted about Malawi. Uh, my foreign friends who are living in Malawi are doing extremely well for themselves, mm. exploiting opportunities that I can never see as a Malawian. Mm. Um, and that's a, that's a part of the human condition in general. Mm. Uh, but yeah, you know, it generally is a, a very different environment outside of South Africa to for entrepreneurs. The challenges are fundamentally different in nature. I wouldn't go as far as claiming that they are more challenging, mm. but I think because South Africa as an economy, there's more money flowing in the economy, right? I think South Africa's GDP, um, let me pull that number up, was uh, 368.3 billion US dollars in 2018. Um, one of the biggest on the continent, definitely in the top three, I think it's Nigeria, maybe Egypt, Morocco, then SE, or mm. Nigeria, I don't even know, but like, it's big. So the chances of you as much to do uh, colliding with one of these 368.3 billion dollars, because you're only like 60 million people, mm. the chances of you colliding with this are more so than me as a Malawian. Um, Malawi's uh, GDP per capita is uh, $398.4 in 2018, meaning that uh, for every Malawian, there are essentially $389 that they are likely to collide with, right? Mm. In, in South Africa, there are $6,374 for every South African that they are likely to collide with. Mm. So, yes, it's it's easier mm. <laughs> in some ways by several orders of magnitude. Um, I think some South African entrepreneurs take that for granted. I don't fault them for it, but like it is, it is part of the human condition. And I think that um, there's definitely benefits in looking at what's possible outside of SA. So one can come and like build a business in SA and like make more money in SA than they would in three or four other countries surrounding it because of those mm. uh, quantitative economic figures, which you can't challenge. Like this, this, this is math, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't have a position on that. I think um, I would love it if more South African entrepreneurs got more excited about the continent, but I don't blame them for not uh, taking it as seriously because on uh, on a cash basis, in terms of today's value, uh, it doesn't make the most business sense. You mentioned something that sort of stuck with me because I think it, it's very difficult to be a young entrepreneur trying to figure things out. One, how to be young how to be a man, and then how to be an entrepreneur, how to be a successful entrepreneur. And you mentioned um, Kamiwaza, right? And you said it was the godlike way of doing things. Can you please go back into sort of what that is, how it works, and why it matters? Totally. And I, I think everyone's got to take themselves back to the kid they were in junior school, and you were asked to run that 100-meter race. And for, you know, for the 20 people in the race, all but one, one kid didn't win. And for the other kids, they had an incredible time running their heart out, running like the gods. And it's that experience, it's doing it with complete passion and in that godlike way that drives us, that, that gets us into that race and having fun. And it actually doesn't matter what position you, you, you finish in, it, it's how you're doing it. 
And if, if you find an opportunity that lets you do things in that godlike way, you know, success is its own result. You know, we need to stop measuring things in just financial success and go and speak to most entrepreneurs we like. The, the greatest successes were abject failures if measured by, you know, profit and loss and balance sheets and what they sold the businesses for because most of those businesses tanked. Uh, even the overnight successes took years and years and years. I think there was this guy, Steve Jobs, he started uh, some fruit company and he got <laughs> fired, if I remember correctly. And, you know, that that's how it works. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's having that passion that makes it worthwhile. It's it's not the outcome. Hell, nobody gets out of this alive, you know. It, <laughs> what is success? But I can tell you what failure is. Failure is going through your day with mediocrity. Failure is hating the environment you're in, hating yourself, resenting the outcomes that you've produced, and and just embracing the cuckness. And we've got no right to do that. You know, life's short. Go for it. Fail. Fail hard. Fail fast. But but fail with that passion and and fail with joy. Yeah. Um. In in your life, when do you think it really hits you that? You know, you had to shift your mindset to that sort of godlike manner of doing things. Was there a moment you feel like um, it really sunk in, you know, where you understood that if you didn't you know, get to a much higher level of doing things or making things or creating things, then that sort of failure would be inevitable? No, I've, I've never looked at failure. I've, uh, you know, I've never been one to do things half-assed. I've always done things whole-assed. Um, you know, you've got to, you, you've got to go for it. And I've, I've never been scared to fail. I've never been scared to make a fool of myself. I've never been scared to go against public opinion. I think, I, I think that's the journey. And I think the hard knocks have forged me into believing this more. It's, I've never looked over my shoulder at what the competition are doing. I've never looked over my shoulder to see how how the guys behind me are running. It's, it's about going forward. And, you know, then you have these experiences. And coming was isn't my idea. It's Seth, Seth Godin's idea. And, you know, when I heard that for the first time, I went, hell, that resonates with what I've, with what I've been experiencing doing where I see success. And, you know, you, these things temper you into, into that bigger picture. Yeah. So you went into what failure looks like, but what for you looks... It, what does success look like for you? I mean, best coffee shop in the world, when I'm, possibly the best <laughs> coffee I've ever had, and I probably won't ever have something like I, that I, again. But okay, how do you so, define so success? That that kind of success is transient. Mm. That moment of euphoria of being the best coffee shop in the world probably lasted somewhere between two and seven seconds. You know, hell, I got it, and then you go, shit, what I do now? <laughs> what, what what's our next? And I think the joy for me is in the tinkering. And success for me is when I'm in a space where I can tinker, where I have the resources to tinker. And I think those resources we need to be careful of as well. Um, and, and you need to understand the theory of constraints. I think having unlimited money uh, to do something isn't the helpful thing. I actually think there's, there's a sweet spot where you have enough resources to get started and get going and, and bring things to market, but but not enough that it doesn't create a constraint to sharpen your thinking. Um, there's, 
the various classic stories that, you know, architects say, well, you know, if only I could build a property, you know, in the way I wanted, but I always have to conform to the size of the plot, the environment of the plot, the legislation. But I'm prepared to bet if you gave them a green field in the middle of nowhere, they wouldn't know where to get started with no regulations, mm. you know, and no budget. Uh, and no home requirement or business requirement. You need to know that you're building the dream house for this person on that plot with this view, with, with these constraints. And suddenly the inspiration starts coming through because we start problem solving, not just imagine, Im, imagining. If I, if I said to you, Mushudo, invent something, you know, to your heart's content, you'd sit there contemplating your navel and eventually, you know, go on Facebook or whatever, it's probably Instagram, <laughs> you know, and and uh, and off you'd go. But if I said, you know, what's your biggest hardship with your microphone setup and, and how could we make that better, you'd probably come up with three really good ideas. Yeah. So do you, do you then look at sort of restrictions, constraints and challenges as being... Um, somehow a motivation or inspiration for work that you can actually create and develop and that can actually feed into the innovation and creativity? That feeds into the disruption and anarchy. So give me a set of rules and I passionately set about trying to break them. <laughs> tell me how it is and I'll tell you how it could be. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think I think for me that's that's where I find the edges and the edges are where things are exciting, you know. When, when I go mountain biking and there's a big wide road and I'm going at 40 k's an hour, it's not particularly exciting, but give me a piece of single track and, uh, and a target to, to reach, you know, I'm, I'm flat out, balls to the walls, having, having fun. I, I think we find that joy at the edges. Um, and when I was told that coffee is bitter and you need to put sugar in it, I went, no, 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 there's got to be a better way. There's, there's got to be something else. And, um, you know, the whole thing of flavor, not bitterness. And then we were chasing acidity. And then I, I was sitting with a group of judges in New York and we were going, hell, we're all tired of this acidic coffee. And we went, why do we like the acidity? And we realized that acidity wasn't the good coffee, but the good coffee had acidity. But now we were chasing acidity and it was tiring our palates out. And we suddenly realized we all love sweetness. And I went, I'm getting back home and I'm building a, a coffee called Black Honey and I did. It took me a year and a half to do it from that point, but I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't know if it could be done, but I did it and pretty much the, the, the speciality coffee world is now talking about sweetness. Um, I'm not giving myself credit. It was, it was group epiphany, but uh, the credit I will give myself is relentlessly trying to build that coffee and building it first and, and that was a world first. 